The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. I had to think about what I wanted to do with the sort of small amount of energy I had every day. And normally when you're 20, you don't have to think about that because you've got oodles of energy. But it was very clear to me that in that moment that what I wanted to do was right. That was the thing that made me feel better. And like it was nourishing as opposed to depleting. And also being sick like that, and I had been healthy my whole life and then continued to be healthy afterwards. It was really shocking and made me realize sort of that life can change on a dime and you don't know what's going to happen. And so within that sickness, I was like, well, I'm really going to try to be a writer because I want to live the life that I want to live. And then if I fail, it will be my failure. But I had this new understanding sort of of time and, and of course of the fragile nature of life. And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. New York Times bestselling author Anne Napolitano spoke with me about overcoming rejection early on, how grief transformed her writing process, and getting that faithful call from Oprah about Hello Beautiful. Anne is the New York Times bestselling author of Hello Beautiful, which was selected as Oprah's 100th book club pick, Dear Edward, an instant New York Times bestseller, a read with Jenna selection in an Apple TV Plus series, a good hard look, and within arm's reach. Hello Beautiful has been called a powerfully affecting family story that asks, can love make a broken person whole? The Washington Post said of the book, another tender tearjerker, Napolitano, chronicles life's highs and lows with aching precision. It was named Chicago Public Library's 10 Best Books of the Year and Best Book of the Year by the New York Times Book Review, NPR, The Washington Post, Time, Vogue, Glamour, Harper's Bazaar, and others. Anne was the associate editor of the literary magazine One Story for seven years, and she received an MFA from New York University. In this file, Anne and I discussed her long and rocky road to success, how an illness early in life helped her realize she was a writer, why her first published book felt like a proving ground, the nine-month approach to planning your next novel, how to write the truest sentence possible, why you need to string together as many X's as you can, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow 
to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. All right, we are back on the Writer Files. I am very honored today to be joined by an esteemed guest, of course. Um, today we have the New York Times bestselling author, Anne Napolitano, and I hope I pronounced your name properly. Give me uh, any notes. It sounds great. <laughs> no notes. <laughs> okay, perfect. You, you pronounced it for me, so... Um, I hope I did it right. But yeah, I can't wait to chat with you about all the things today, Anne. And um, what is going on over there? What is the vibe in Brooklyn these days? <laughs> the vibe in Brooklyn is it's January. So I feel like everywhere, everybody stays home. And then we're having like another COVID surge. So I think people are more staying home. I mean, for me right now, I'm not, I'm sort of in happily in a lull between like promoting books. So I'm sort of hiding at home, working on a new book and very happily doing so. Yeah. Well, very cool. I can't wait to talk about all things writing, the writing life, the fantastic successes that you've had in this uh, career that you've uh, undertaken. And and yeah, I want to talk about some of your superhero origins because I know you've been an editor for a lit mag and of course you've done your share of education and, and probably continue to do so. But um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about just wind the clock back a little bit for us and, and I don't know, um, dig into some of the, the cliffs on where you've been and, and how, how you're doing today. I mean, I guess like most writers, it's sort of been a long and rocky road, at least by the time you get to be my age, I'm 52. I always wanted to be a writer and, but I was very shy and not filled with a lot of self-belief. And so when I went to college, when I was looking at colleges, I had two criteria, one of which is relevant to writing and one of which is not. Um, I wanted to go to a college that had a creative writing teacher because a lot of them didn't. And I knew I wanted to try to write while I was in college. And then I also wanted a school that didn't have fraternities and sororities, as I realized that wasn't like an ideal social setup for me, the extremely shy person. Um, so those are my two criteria that helped me pick a college. So in college, I wrote for, for four years. Um, but I really thought I would go into publishing because I was scared. I did not think that I was good enough to be a writer. And indeed I was not good enough to be a writer, but I was, you know, 1920, it would have been weird if I was good enough, but I felt like I needed to do something that had more stability and I would have health insurance and my parents would feel more comfortable with. But what happened actually was that I got, uh, sick after my junior year of college with a virus called Epstein-Barr. And it's just like a big fat mononucleosis basically, but it lasts for like, in my case, it lasted three years. And it took me an extra year to finish college. And it basically wipes out your immune system and you're very tired. So when I got sick, I actually did end up returning to school, um, but I took a half load of classes and I took sort of easy classes. But I had to think about what I wanted to do with the sort of small amount of energy I had every day. And normally when you're 20, you don't have to think about that because you've got oodles of energy. But it was very clear to me that in that moment that what I wanted to do was right. That was the thing that made me feel better. And like, it was nourishing as opposed to depleting. 
and also being sick like that, and I had been healthy my whole life and then continued to be healthy afterwards, it was really shocking and made me realize sort of that life can change on a dime and you don't know what's going to happen. And so within that sickness, I was like, well, I'm really going to try to be a writer because I want to live the life that I want to live. And then if I fail, it will be my failure. But I had this new understanding sort of of time and, and of course of the fragile nature of life. And so when I finished college, I went to graduate school for writing to sort of buy time, literally, <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to work on it. So I, I went to NYU, um, to the MFA program. And while I was there, I wrote a novel, my first novel that I wrote. And I sent it out to agents, as you do, like the first section or whatever. And it was rejected by 80 agents. And a couple of them wrote nice notes or whatever, like in the margins of the letter that gives you like some hope to move on. But, you know, 80 agents is a lot to reject you. And so I put that book aside and I got a job as a personal assistant when I graduated. And I wrote another novel while I was working as a personal assistant. And that one I was able to get an agent for, but she was unable to sell the book. Um, There was like one editor who was interested and then her boss went on maternity leave and it just didn't happen. So at that point, I was like 28 years old. And I had never published anything because I really am a novelist. I I wrote short stories during college, but they just kept getting longer and longer. And um, it became clear that I love reading novels. And it's just like, it's the fictional world that I exist the most authentically in. So I had never published anything. And so I felt like a big failure, like with a big capital F, because the people in my life knew that this is what I wanted to do. And they knew I was failing at it at this point. And my father was sending me brochures for law school oh, in the mail. And he, he paid for me to take a very expensive, um, like one of those job. It's not, it's not a headhunter. It's like a, what are you qualified for kind of a job yeah. um, a test. And I did terribly at it. I, it said I should be a park ranger basically <laughs> was, was the end result. <laughs> And I realized, I mean, I overthink tests when I take them. And I think they were like, there's like a question on the test that I recall. It was like, how do you feel about doing the same thing all day long? And I was like, wonderful, because I was thinking, I feel wonderful <laughs> writing, writing all day long. But of course, they're thinking that puts you like in a factory or something where you don't mind like putting in a particular divot all day long is the only thing you do. Uh, so I, I failed that on various levels. So I felt really depressed, really, for the first time in my life. And in the midst of that, I just didn't know what to do. I was a personal assistant, but I couldn't see being a personal assistant for my whole life. And I didn't know what else to do. And I started writing really because that was the only thing that made me feel better. So like in the course of a day, if I wrote, then I would feel better for 15 minutes. And so I started writing a new book really in order to climb out of the sort of depression that (laughs) failing at writing had put me in. And that was a big revelatory moment for me because I realized then that I was going to keep writing and that I had to keep writing whether I ever published a word. And I assumed at that point that I would not, but that in order for me to feel like a whole healthy person and to feel like a person, even I had to write in the same way I had to brush my teeth and exercise basically. And so I wrote what ended up being my first published novel, you know, in order to climb out of that. And it just did change my stance on writing. For I never <laughs> expected to be published. I never expected success. And so my first book came out to not very much success. I was, you know, a small, very small readership, but I was so thrilled. And I was still a personal assistant. And then 
I started working on the, my next novel, which is called A Good Hard Look. And that one took me eight years to write. It was very challenging. That kind of ended up being feeling like my graduate school, true graduate school. When I finished that book, my husband and my, I don't even know if it was my, yeah, I guess he was my husband at that point. He said, it was really hard writing a good hard look. The writer Flannery O'Connor is in it. And I did not want Flannery O'Connor to be in it. It was sort of like she appeared in the book and I fought it. And I'm from the North and you should not be writing about Southern literary icons. If you're from New Jersey, it's basically frowned upon. And I did not want to do that. Like those, but I couldn't. So I just, I fought that book for a long time. And then the fact that Flannery was in it meant that it could not be (laughs) mediocre. Like I had to make it as good as I could in order to not disrespect Flannery O'Connor. So it was very wrought. And at the end of that eight years, my husband was like, I think you should do the next one differently because this is supposed to be, you're not making significant money in any way. Like you, this is a labor of love and shouldn't you actually love it? And I mean, he was right. And so that was like, that was sort of interesting to me. And he has a really different brain from me. And so he was like, for the ne- when you get your next idea, I think you should not let yourself write for a distinct period of time. And because what I like to do is what I call writing pretty sentences where my modus of writing up until that point had been the sort of intuitive writer model or whatever, where I would have an idea for a scene or a character and I would just start and I had no idea where I was going. And that's how you end up with Flannery O'Connor in your novel is when you <laughs> have, no, have no plan to begin with. And then things just happen, which is wonderful. It's an act of discovery and it may, you know, it's a lot like being a reader and it, it's wonderful. It is really, I love that aspect of writing But when I am writing like that, it's a kind of a lyrical, really sort of musical, intuitive experience where I'm following the story and following the language. And I cannot think cerebrally or analytically at all while I'm doing it. It like sort of shuts down that part of my brain. So what my husband suggested and what I did for for the first time with Dear Edward was for nine months, I wasn't allowed to write pretty sentences. I couldn't write. Um, what I could do was think, research, and take notes. And that ended ended up being very helpful, although I was annoyed at him at the time, because I, it was hard for me not to write for nine months. Um, but that this way I was able, so I did that for Dear Edward and Hello Beautiful, I was able to, um, you know, walk into the story knowing <laughs> Um, sounds so obvious, but like knowing something about the story and knowing who the characters were and having ideas of where I thought it was going to go. And even though some of those things don't end up being used, probably like maybe even 50% of the, the, uh, the things I figure out in the nine months prior to writing don't work. It, I'm still, the world is tactile to me before I enter it. And I have like a, a semi plan and then things can surprise me and happen within it. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, 
where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview, and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. So that worked for really nicely for Dear Edward, which took me eight years to write too. So it actually didn't cut down on my writing time. Um, <laughs> but, but it was a joyful experience. Uh, I was like tortured while I was writing A Good Hard Luck. And I loved every minute of writing Dear Edward, even though it was challenging um, it wasn't easy, but I, I was so, so grateful to be in that world and so joyful within it. When I got the idea for Hello Beautiful, I set the nine month timer, you know, with, within myself and, you know, thought research, took notes, met, you know, met with like a NBA physio and did a lot of reading on various topics. And then the timer went off in April, 2020 which was a weird time to have a timer go off to start a book because we were at the very beginning of the pandemic. And, um, and my father died that month. And because of the timing of the, the pandemic, because of COVID, we weren't able to be with him when he was dying. And then we weren't able to gather when he died, which happened to so many people during that period of time. But it's a very unique and weird experience to, you know, to not have the sort of, um, marking posts of losing someone that we know we are accustomed to. So when I actually started writing, I started writing in this very heightened uh, state where I was grieving and also very worried about what was going on in the world. And I have two children. And so I think some of that intensity, I sort of sank very deep into Hello Beautiful right away. And it, I wrote it in two years, which if you're following along, is much faster than my prior books because it really just swallowed me whole. It really sort of saved me while I was writing it. Hmm. Yeah, and it's amazing that you that you describe it like being swallowed whole and save and saving you um, in that heightened state of grief. Because I, I've heard so many writers say that that was a really fraught time for them and that they were unable to to write or feel like they could you know, achieve that kind of like flow state that it sounds like you found. Yeah, I think people went either way. I think I was lucky that I had already 
like the nine, I had the nine months, which is part of the process. So I had this book, you know, building and growing in my head. I think if I'd had to start thinking about the book in that time, I wouldn't have been able to, because it would have just felt too foolish and frivolous and made up, but it didn't feel entirely made up to me by the time that I was due to start writing it. So I was really lucky in that regard. I had a hard time reading, but I didn't have a hard time writing. Interesting. Um, well, I'm very sorry to hear about the loss of your father. And uh, yeah, it was a hard time for so many. Um, and just like a really challenging time. But um, for you, it seems that, um, you know, a good hard look had gotten some acclaim and was one of NPR's best of 2011. And then um, Dear Edward kind of took on another level of, of uh a claim for you because it was named one of the best of 2020 by a lot of outlets. Um, it was an instant New York times bestseller and, uh, it became a, an Apple TV plus show even that I've seen, uh, with Connie Britton and uh, Taylor Schilling. Yeah. Taylor Schilling and, and yeah. some amazing acting by that young. Yeah. Actor, Colin, O'Brien. Colin O'Brien. He's a wonderful uh, actor. Yeah. I mean, that must've been, must've felt like, kind of a a peak to see that come to fruition did you get to were, were you um involved in any of the creative process in that one or did you get to meet any of the talent yeah um i was not involved but i didn't want to be involved uh the the writer who optioned dear edward is um jason Kadams, and he wrote and was the showrunner for friday night lights and parenthood and several other shows so i was you know, I'm an immense fan of his as a writer. So he, when I met with him, he was like, I'm going to reimagine it. Are you okay with that? And I was like, yes, <laughs> I'm interested to see what you do. But to me, it's entire, you know, it's an enti- entirely different entity from a novel. Anyway, I was very comfortable completely handing it over to him. Um, I went to the set when they were shooting in Central Park and I met the boy who plays Edward and I met Taylor Schilling and watched them shoot a couple scenes and then I went to LA for the premiere. I mean, it was all, it was very fun. Like I don't, Mm -hmm. it's, I didn't, I feel so lucky. I am so lucky in so many ways. And, um, and I, my attitude for like adaptations, I mean, this is the only one that happened for me. Uh, My first novel was turned into a play in New York, uh, very, very off Broadway, but it's just like, how cool, like art, creating more art is spectacular. And I'm not attached to the result. I'm just very happy to be on that ride. Yeah. Speaking of um, Hello Beautiful as well, uh, became the 100th book club pick for Oprah's book club. I mean, you know, and I've, I've heard it described as like the Oscars for authors. Um, so I, I know this is a funny story and you, you've recounted it, but Talk about what that moment was like, because, because obviously you you had to have sensed like something was going to happen, or um, no. you know what 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 was the <laughs> what was that moment like for you, or that just time that time frame? <laughs> I didn't sense anything like that <laughs> at all. Um, when I finished writing a book, I have I my whole I'm looking for emotional truth. Basically, that's what excites me. And that's what I'm seeking the entire time. So I feel like I write while I'm holding like an emotional tuning fork, like a, 
uh, like a musical tuning fork where I'm every sentence basically and every scene, I'm like, is that true? Is that true? Is that true? Would this character respond this way if this happened? And all of my rewriting is based around trying to make it as true as possible. So when I finished writing the book, and certainly in the case of Hello Beautiful, I was like, my sense of accomplishment is that, okay, I, I think it's true, but I have no idea if it's any good at all. And it might be terrible. And Hello Beautiful, I thought this might be like a very cheesy soap opera. I have, <laughs> I have no idea about the quality, quality at all. And then I handed over to copy editors, which is sort of the first phase after you really finish. And that's when it leaves your computer for the first time. Like I no mm-hmm. longer have the real file. It lives at Random House. And almost no one has read it yet because like six people at Random House have read it because it's not, you know, it's not readable yet. It's being copy edited. So no one, right. it's like, I don't have it anymore and no one has read it. And this world that I've been living in goes dark and that makes me sad. <laughs> so mm. I always find finishing a book really hard for like two months. I'm like super sad because this work, you know, like I have my real life and then I have this fictional world and having just the lights go out that overtly when I finally got to, to the point where it's the most real and three dimensional and true as it has ever been is like, I'm, I love these characters. I love this world. It's part of me. And then that it like goes away. And so it went into copy edits basically in like July into August of the year that I finished it, which my brain should be able to do the math, but I can't. <laughs> In like the end of August, they start. It went started. It went out in Hollywood. That was the first place that it went out. It wasn't even a galley yet, like an advanced reader copy with a with a cover that didn't yet exist. It only went out in Hollywood because usually you have a film agent that's attached to your literary agent, and so it gets you know sent out to producers or whatever. And my mm-hmm. film agent had decided to send it out earlier than anything else was happening. And so a bunch of people in Hollywood had read it, but no, still no one else. And then in like early October or mid October, there was finally a galley, like a, an advanced reader copy with the cover and everything. And that's when it, it had like, it started to be sent out in sort of mid October, like to librarians and booksellers, et cetera. And I sent it to my uncle, Ed, who lives in Chicago and who sort of inspired the the main male character William and also the setting of the book in Pilsen in Chicago is because of my uncle and he also used to send me postcards when I was little that and where the salutation was hello beautiful and um, I knew he didn't really know what I looked like because he had like twenty million nieces and nephews and I lived <laughs> in New Jersey but so I felt like he was seeing some beauty on the inside of me and since I was so shy I it seemed accurate to me that if I had any beauty, it was on the inside. So I really liked that greeting. And so obviously the, the, um, the father in the book, that's how he greets his daughters. And so I sent a book to my uncle in Chicago because I was like, heads up. <laughs> like I know, you know, that I was writing a novel that was based in Chicago, but I don't think you know that, you know, I've taken your catchphrase, et cetera, et cetera, and put it into this. And I want you to read it ahead of time. And so when my phone rang, like, three weeks into October and it said Chicago, no one had read the book and I had no idea if it was good. Like we, that is where I was. I, 
you know, like my agent editor and film agent had been very kind, you know, they they, they were like, we think it's great. And I'm like, well, that's nice, but you're kind of like my mom's. I don't know. Like, it feels like you're biased in some way. I appreciate it, but we'll see. And so I answered my phone while I was taking out the garbage uh, in my Brooklyn apartment one afternoon because it said Chicago. And I, I thought this must be my uncle because I had just sent it to him the week before. Maybe he was saying that he had received it. And so I answered and and this voice said, hi, Anne, it's Oprah Winfrey. And I thought, my first thought was that it was a robocall because, (laughs) you know, you get those where like Bill Clinton will call you and say, you know, hi, Kelton, this is Bill Clinton. I'd like you to vote for so-and-so, you know, they're very smart now, (laughs) the way that they use those. But she also didn't, didn't fully sound like a robocall. So I said, Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey. And, and then she started saying things like, you know, that she had read Hello Beautiful and that she loved it. And I was just, and then it's like a full out of body experience. Like, it's like, it makes me think of that sort of that scene in Pulp Fiction where they st- they stick a needle into Uma Thurman's chest and she convulses. It's like, because it's like having your t- <laughs> TV from when you're 14 call you. And honestly, never in my life would I have dreamed, I didn't even dream that Oprah Winfrey would ever read one of my books, much less that I would be chosen for her book club. Fully, a million percent inconceivable. I know a lot of writers do dream about that, but like, I don't, it just had never entered my realm of <laughs> conceivable possibilities. Wow. And um, so it was shock. It was so shocking and fully is legitimately probably the most exciting thing that will ever happen to me. In my <laughs> life was having, was having her call me on the phone while I was taking out the garbage. Um, and then I had to keep it a secret for five months. So, oh my God. Yeah. And that, that was, something because you yeah. have the most exciting like you want to tell your best friends literally not even about the book club but just that oprah winfrey had called me on the phone was a very weird thing to keep a secret yeah um i can't imagine how you would feel um knowing and obviously keeping it a secret had to have been hard like you you had to have wanted to at one point like just be like hey like, you can't tell anybody this, but... Well, I, I told my two best writer friends in the middle of a field. <laughs> like, there, there's no one around us. And there, I have these two writers, Helen Ellis and Hannah Tinty, who I went to NYU with, and we have been each other's first readers ever since. Um, and... Amazing. So they're like... they We call it a marriage. So, like, I feel like they are my second marriage. And because... They, they understand. Like I knew, I knew A, I had to tell them because if I didn't, it would be like a betrayal. And B, <laughs> I knew that they understood the stakes of this situation and would not, like they, they would get it in a way that my best friend who's a doctor wouldn't get it necessarily. Um, so I did tell them and obviously my husband knew. And then I told my mother like two months before the announcement because I was like, I have to tell her before, but not too much before. Right. Um, yeah. So it was, it was real. It was very tricky. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, obviously, congrats on all the success and a claim that has come with Hello Beautiful. And, and um, yeah, I mean, looking back, obviously, it's had to have been kind of a whirlwind. And does it aff- does it affect your process? Because I know I've, I've spoken with other authors who've won big prizes or, um, you know, had to kind of become, you know, spokesman for a time. And, and really, and obviously, the book kind of promotes itself at that point. But um, it's almost as if, the world wants more of you, more, want, wants more from you, and, and does it take away from then the thing that you love the most, which is obviously um, writing? Yeah, it, I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful. The book came out in March, so it's not even a year yet. And I mean, I, Oprah calling me exceeded my wildest dreams. How well Hello Beautiful has been received has exceeded my highest dreams. So and you know, I don't want to be churlish and churlish in any in any way, but I suppose my situation was mitigated by the fact that I mentioned I had this virus Epstein Barr when I was in my twenties, my early twenties. And actually it's never affected me again, but it's a virus that lives in your body. A lot of people actually have had Epstein Barr and don't realize it. It has like a full scale of like you could have it and have it be extremely mild, or you can have it like how I had it. And the fact that I had it so severely um, puts me at a higher risk for long COVID if I get COVID. Hmm. So mm-hmm. I actually have been very, um, I've had to be very cautious, which has affected, you know, and limited. I, I did, I have gone on a book tour twice, but there was masking involved, et cetera. And I haven't, mm-hmm. I haven't really done a lot of the things that I would have done if I hadn't had that as a concern. So that's in, in many ways, it kind of works well for me because it mm-hmm. <laughs> keeps, it yeah. lets me stay home more than I would have really felt like I, should have otherwise. Interesting. Well, congrats on the work. Obviously, um, I'd be super interested to hear what you are working on, if you can talk about it. And also, you know, I mean, you've talked some already about the evolution of your process. And then I understand that you did a, um, a class recently with, it looks like your old friends there, um, called Crafting Your Writing Life, and had talked about these decisions that writers are forced to make to kind of um, I think you get into like protecting your writing time and um, also some about being kind to yourself, which we talk a lot about on this show, um, but also just like figuring out where to focus your attention. So I don't know, talk talk a little bit about maybe where you're at right now in that process and also, um, yeah, some of the wisdom gleaned, you know, I know we don't have a ton of time, but, um, and I'd love to have you back, of course. But yeah, talk a little bit about this this uh, course as well. Yeah, um, I mean everything you just mentioned is like I I am I mean I have taught intermittently over the last almost fifteen years I guess um, I do it erratically and I really enjoy it I just I find it like it's a full body <laughs> full full human experience so like I can't really write while I teach because the teaching 
and the sort of caretaking of other people's work is so important to me. And so enveloping that it deserves everything that I have. But actually this class I teach and I have taught before for one story, the literary magazine that I um, was a assistant editor for, for like seven years. And my friend Hannah Tinty, who's one of my writer friends that I mentioned is one of the co-founders of it. And it's a wonderful literary magazine, sends you one, just one story in the mail once a month and they never publish a writer twice. So just if you think about that, it's kind of awesome. I always forget numbers. I, they're at least in the 300s of how many writers they've published, but a lot of debut writers. It's a spectacular literary magazine. And yeah, everybody should subscribe. But I teach a class for them online, and it is about crafting your writing life. And it's what you just said. I mean, it's the things that I figured out over the years where I used to, in the beginning, when I was very much failing, I didn't necessarily speak that kindly to myself about my work or my capacity or anything related to who I wanted to be. Um, I wasn't as brutal as some people are, but I wasn't kind. And so there's many things like that, that I learned along the way that when I did start speaking more kindly to myself and really I evolved from having writing a good hard look, be this sort of really filled with dis despair experience and then reaching the end of it and realizing I don't want to live like that or write like that and shifting it enormously before and while I wrote Dear Edward. And so what I tell young writers is you have to be kind to yourself and kind to the work. And you're, if you can love the work and love yourself, everything is better. Um, everything gets better. And also you'll sit down more and you'll, you'll work harder and you'll, it's important to have high standards for your work, but you have to treat yourself with grace and kindness. Um, the, the piece of advice that I give the most often that seems to be resonant that I also talk about in this class is what I found that when I was like writing um, a good hard look and your Edward, both of which took so long is there would be a point in the middle where you're like four years in and it's a hot mess. And I know that I'm nowhere near this book being done. And that's like a period of sort of like in the middle of the tunnel despair. And my, my tip for those periods of time is what I would do with myself What I would make a deal that I had to write for at least five minutes a day but I didn't have to write for more than five minutes. And when I wrote for five minutes, I would put an X on my calendar. And my only job was to string together as many X's as I could. And obviously a lot of those days I would end up writing for more than five minutes. But if you're in a period of your life where you are, you know, a caretaker to an aged parent or you have a baby or your job is demanding or, you know, life is difficult, you still have five minutes and that will keep yourself and the work moving forward until you sort of just naturally move out of that period of despair. And you'll find that you're still with the work and the work is still with you. And that, you know, just that one, that one trick can be very, very helpful. Thank you so much for your, for your wisdom. And, and that sounds just like, like an important message to kind of leave our listeners with. Um, and I usually ask, that question at the end of the show, you know, what, what would you be your advice to your fellow scribes and just how to keep going? And that sounds like a really, really important one, um, all of it. But I want to respect your time and I know that you probably have to get going. Can you talk about um, where, you're, where you're at in the process for your next one? Because have you, have, you, have you gotten through the nine-month uh, <laughs> plan? 
planning yes. phases? Okay. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have. The nine-month timer went off in June. So I've been writing since then. And each of my books has some kind of obsession that leads me into it. That's actually one of the things that I talk about too, when I talk to young writers or beginning writers is paying attention to your obsessions and the things that sort of like capture your attention that you wouldn't have chosen to be captured by. And each of my books has had something, some obsession that has led me into it in very, in, in a way. And for uh, hello, beautiful. It was a history of basketball. I became obsessed mm. with the history of basketball, yeah. which made no, made no sense, which is one of the things that I tell writers to look for. Like, that's the thing you need to pay attention to. Like, why am I obsessed with the history of basketball? It doesn't make sense within the context of my life. I'm a soccer player. Um, or was a soccer <laughs> player. <laughs> and, uh, and so for this book, it's, um, it's trees. I, I read the overstory by Richard Powers, um, I guess almost two years ago. And that blew my mind, that book and the sort of the trees being these main characters in it in a way. And when that, when I finished reading that book, when I finished a book that I love, I always seek out like all the interviews I can find with the writer about that book. And I listened to a number from Richard Powers. I hadn't read any of his books prior to that. And in his inter- in a couple of the interviews, he said that he feels like it's beholden on the contemporary writer to diversify their storytelling, and not only in the ways that we have been thankfully more successful at diversifying in the last you know ten five well, let's say five years, um, telling different stories of different peoples, but to diversify our storytelling to the world that we live in, the earth that we live on and the other living beings around us. And that he feels like that's an, if as artists, it's our responsibility to do that because that's the step that we can take to try to help humans raise our consciousness in the ways that it needs to be raised for us to continue to be humans on this earth, because we are not going doing a good job and we will not be here if we don't, if we don't evolve mm. basically. Mm-hmm. And that really resonated with me. And I felt like you're right. I need to take that on as a challenge and as, you know, a calling because I do want to, um, I listened to a little of your interview with, I forget her name, the climate, climate journalist, Amy Westervelt. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I do want to, I address that, you know, within myself and I want to address it to some extent in my work. So, um, what led me into this book was that I wanted, I wanted the trees in the book in a way to be characters as well as the people. So it's, it's set on a cul-de-sac in the town that I grew up in in New Jersey, which has a bunch of forests and sort of some public land adjacent to it. And it's about the people who live on that cul-de-sac and also the trees on that cul-de-sac. Well, we'll definitely look for that one. Do you have a working title? And you don't have to share it, obviously. If you, if it's no. Not a... Well, yes, but I can't. It's like, okay. I just fl- I flip it all the time. I have no idea. I'm okay. terrible at titles. Okay. Well, I have to say, and thank you so much for um, taking the time today to talk with us and wax philosophical about your process and this fascinating um, life that you've had. But um, open invitation, please come back whenever you like. Love to wrap with you more about this evolution of your journey. And uh, if you have time for one fun one, I will ask you a goofy question. Um, If you could have dinner with any author from any era, 
uh, to your favorite spot in the world, who would you take and where would you take them? Dinner, drinks, it's on It's on us. Oh, God. Ugh. <laughs> That's a very interesting and terrible question. <laughs> I am so introverted. Like it's like it's just a nightmare to me to think about having to to interact with the writers that I would love to like I want to sit at the table next to them and listen to them <laughs> talk as opposed to me actually having to be involved. I mean Flannery O'Connor would be there certainly. Um James Baldwin, gosh. Jane Austen would be very interesting. And then I'm blanking, but there's so many. Um, oh, Toni Morrison. Gosh. Hmm. And I don't definitely don't want to be at that table. It's That's so stressful <laughs> to me. <laughs> All right. But I would love to be in the room. You can be a fly on the wall. We'll yes. sit at the bar. And, yes. And eavesdrop. Yes, that would be great. <laughs> I would love that. If they recorded as like a podcast, I would just listen to that forever. There you go. All <laughs> right. I think we have a new podcast idea. Okay, um, of course, it would have, unless we had a time machine, it would have to be somewhat fictional. Yes. But, uh, and thank you again. Um, wish you the best of luck with everything and, and your latest. Yeah, come back and wrap with us again sometime in the future. Oh, thank you, Kelton. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm. Dot FM.